Museum director, curator, and cultural producer at large, Chris Durkin is the president of the Réunion des Musées Nationaux, Grand Palais, an umbrella group of national museums in France. His career in major cultural institutions spans decades. He has served as director of London's Tate Modern, Vite de Witt Centre of Contemporary Art, and Museum Boymans van Bünningen in Rotterdam, the Haus der Kunst in Munich, and Berlin's Volkswagen Theatre, and program director of MoMA PS1. He's also a presenter, writer, and maker of cultural documentaries. Chris Jerkin, welcome right. to the creative process. Thank you. So, you know, you have uh, recently assumed the presidency at the Grand Palais. Uh, so what was your vision going in, in terms of your starting this new construction project, your preserving its history? What was my vision? I mean, it had very much to do with what I was asked to come and do and look at, um, because the Grand Palais uh, Réunion, the Musée National Grand Palais, is of course a very um, established organization. As you know, the Grand Palais exists since uh, 1900, but the uh, Réunion, the Musée National, existed well before the grounding of the founding of the Grand Palais. And then uh, about 10, 15 years ago, the two were put together, Réunion de Musée National and the Grand Palais. So a completely new organization. And the thing is then, what can you do? And it's not a question of personal uh, conviction. I think it has very much to do in terms of what is necessary. Because the Réunion de Musée National was founded in a moment in time when the French museums, there were collections, but there were no exhibition spaces as such. And that changed drastically in the 80s. Centre Pompidou in the 70s. The Musée du Louvre got to do their own exhibitions in their exhibition spaces. The Musée d'Orsay. So the question was, what is the Réunion de Musée National going to do now? Réunion de Musée National is also in charge of regional museums. But also these regional museums, they have developed themselves. So is the Réunion de Musée National still necessary? That was a question which came up immediately and we spoke about transformation. And the answer is yes, it's still necessary because, believe it or not, most museums right now, they have their own exhibition spaces and they thrive on the income of their exhibitions more than on the income of their collections, especially in the regions. But I was astonished, and I'm still astonished, that lots of these French museums, they don't have their own teams, installation teams, they don't have their own teams for communication. It's incredible that uh, with the French Revolution, so much of the works in hands of private people, they got redistributed, and of course lots went to the Louvre. But there were other, other amazing works which stayed into the regions. But then looking at the 60s, I mean, there were decisions like André Marot, the former Minister of Culture, who decided that Musée Cluny had to be Musée Cluny. So one could speak about 
the founding of Paris as a Gothic city, and the works of the French Renaissance got evacuated to the Musée des Coins. And it was also André Marot who established the National Archaeological Museum in Saint-Germain-en-Laye. But these museums, they don't have enough staff, they don't have enough income, they need uh, absolutely uh, help in, in order to get organized. And the Réunion de Musée National is an amazing tool because the savoir-faire, the experiences here in the organization are not just in terms of uh, this incredible phototech, but also pub publishing, publications. We have uh, amazing organizational teams to make exhibitions. And uh, we have a fantastic digital department. We have an amazing communication department. We have an amazing development department. So we have tools which these museums need. Mm. And the question is, what can the Réunion, the Musée National, still do in Paris then? Because you know the famous museums in Paris, they have all these departments, they have all these skills. Yet, we have um, not only a reputation, but also lots of experience. So our publications department is constantly on demand, not just by museums like Musée d'Orsay, but also by the Opera de Paris, and even by the Cinematheque. The digital department is working very closely together with the Louvre, because some museums don't have that experience yet in terms of digital. So we have developed our, let's say, reputation into skills. And that reputation, which was transformed into skills, is also necessary to run the Grand Palais, but also necessary to run the new Grand Palais. Because the question today is, if the theatre was the place for ritual in the ancient times, and if the church or if the cathedral was the place for ritual in the medieval times, and if the museum was the place for rituals in terms of public rituals, in the industrial times, then the question is which kind of place we need for the rituals of the 21st century. Let me give you an example. When you look at new museums, suddenly they are full of furniture. When I worked for Tate Modern Extension Number 2, we not only had architects, but we had also an industrial designer called Jasper Morrison. And we planned very carefully which types of furniture which we are going to use, where and how. When I went to see the new Museum of Modern Art in New York, <laughs> it was full of furniture. Because people, the public starts to use museums in a complete different way. When we asked the Tate Modern, why do you want to come? People said, we want to come to gain knowledge. People said, we want to come to admire. But most people said, we want to come to the museum because it's a perfect place for encounters. And this whole thing about the different use of the museum is, of course, very much at stake also when we are developing the new Grand Palais. Because the new Grand Palais is a vast space since the beginning of the 
20th century. But it's also a space which was from its very beginning a very hybrid space. And museums are becoming not only places for encounters, they are also becoming more and more hybrid places. Why? When Hal Foster wrote The Archive Without a Museum in the 90s in October magazine, he was thinking about a cover of Art Forum, which was published in 1996. And what did we see on that cover? We saw Courtney Love, we saw an architect called Christian de Porzampac, we saw Calvin Klein, we saw, of course, Gilbert and George, we saw an early Mondrian piece, we saw uh, some film buffs, Larry Clark, actually, a takeout from a Larry Clark film was on the cover. So it was about art plus architecture, art plus fashion, art plus film, art plus design, art plus, plus, plus. So in the 80s, the museum, and definitely in the 90s, beyond appropriation, beyond creating a pseudo space for sociology, for ecology, for science, the museum started to add plus, art plus. So the museum became a hybrid place. And today the museum is more and more becoming a hybrid place. And you know, since the past months, we speak about uh, underrepresentation of women artists. We see, we speak about underrepresentation of colored people, not just in the collections, but also in terms of staff and terms of management. All these problems are coming together. So the demand on the museum to go beyond a place for public encounters. To go beyond the hybrid place because art is barely shaping its own cultural space anymore. It's when you look at biennials, it's all these different disciplines are coming in. Mm. And often it's a pseudo-discipline, you know. Mm. But the museum is becoming much more than that. The museum today is, is under pressure. And going back to the Grand Palais, it's very interesting that the Grand Palais, since its very beginning, is a hybrid place because we have all the Salon Artistique. Many, many f world famous artists got to shown first at the Grand Palais mm. in the salons. I mean, I remember that uh, El Greco was first seen in Paris in the Grand Palais. But beside the Salon Artistique, you had the Salon de Aviation. And when you think about Picabia and Marcel Duchamp, these guys went to the Salon Artistique, but also to the Salon de Aviation. Mm. And when Rem Colas today is doing a countryside at the Guggenheim in New York, there were this amazing Salon d'Agriculture at the Grand Palais. And in 1937, as you know, we had a world exhibition, which was a scientific exhibition. And Fernand Leger, he painted together with uh, other artists, they were commissioned to do artworks. Le Transport des Forces by Fernand Leger, which was on view recently at uh, Louis Vuitton in the Charlotte Perriand show, was a work commissioned for the 1937 World Exhibition. And in the 1960s, the École des Beaux-Arts, the Department of Architecture, they used the Grand Palais as a school. I mean, so it was always a hybrid place. It was a hybrid place. It was also a campus because the Sorbonne was there, but also the Comédie Française, the École des Beaux-Arts, 
l'architecture le département. And when Marot decided to create Les Galeries Nationales with the architect Pierre Vivien, I mean, things started to happen more and more. The Réunion de Musée National, before it came together with the Grand Palais, was always organizing exhibitions at the Grand Palais. Again, there was no Musée d'Orsay, there was no Centre Pompidou, and the Louvre didn't have exhibition space. But besides the Réunion de Musée National, there was also AFA, L'Action Française Artistique, and even the CNAP, La Collection Nationale des Arts Plastiques, also organized exhibitions at uh, Grand Palais. To give you an example, the exhibition of Spilliard mm. in 1981 was organized by AFA in the Grand Palais. Spilliard is now having an exhibition at Musée d'Orsay. The exhibition of uh, Les Trésors des Collections des Régions was organized by the CNAP, the Collection Nationale des Arts Plastiques. Top works from the regions in these museums where after the French Revolution the national private collections of France were redistributed, they were also shown in the Grand Palais in the 70s, organized by the CNAP. So it's a very interesting history. Salon Industriel, Salon Artistique, exhibitions by AFA, exhibitions by the CNAP, exhibitions, of course, by the Réunion de Musée National, with the best curators of France, Pierre Rosambert, Henri Loiret, and all these things were coming together. And now the question is, because the museum is under pressure, what can we offer? We are probably a hybrid place par excellence since the very beginning. We have post-COVID architecture since the very beginning because it's so vast, because the Grand Palais was created in a time when we started to take notice there was something like the masses. The masses who wanted to be educated. The masses who wanted to be entertained. The masses who came on the street and started to read in the cafes and on the boulevards and went into the museums. So the museum is, uh, the Grand Palais, it's not a museum, it doesn't have a collection, but it's a fantastic space. From the very beginning, it was a hybrid space, and from the very beginning, it had a kind of post-COVID architecture. And that's what we are now doing with the Grand Palais. So you were asking about my vision. I was asked to think about the transformation of the Réunion de Musée National, what is necessary today in terms of museums of the regions, what can be done by the Réunion de Musée National in terms of creating instruments which are lacking in some places, I think the result is that we are now organizing these digital exhibitions with the Louvre. But when you look at uh, the new policy of Castex and the new policy of somebody like who was asked by Macron to think about a plan for the future, François Bayrou, then always the word territories, les régions, pop up. And that's where the Réunion, the Musée National, is very good at. So the transformation of the Réunion du Musée National together with the Grand Palais is something which from the very beginning was there. The Réunion du Musée National and the Grand Palais have always been transformed in something else. And that's something where I'm good at, I think, because I always have worked at change, change management of museums trying to think about the new 
task for the museum, trying to think about different ways to deal with the collections, trying to think about different ways to deal with the audience, audience and engagement. And I've been working, of course, on quite a few extensions of museums. Yeah. I've been, uh, in the 80s, I was program director of PS1, and that was the beginning of uh, talks with Alana Heiss about what is the future of PS1. The result was this merger with MoMA. But also the result was the renovation of these spaces of PS1. And when I went to Rotterdam, I had to think about the transformation, but also about the extension of the museum Boymans van Beuningen. When I then went to the Haus der Kunst, I had to think about the renovation of the Haus der Kunst, which was a building conceived by Trost, commissioned by Hitler. And I had an amazing privilege to be able to work with Frem Kolas and Herzog Dumeron. Think about the architecture. What can you do with such a difficult monument? And when Ockrian Weiser came after me, he charged David Chipperfield to continue these questions uh, which were asked by Kohlhaas and Herzog Dumeron. Then I went to uh, Tate Modern, where I was very much involved in Tate Modern extension number two. And now I'm here. And again, I'm involved in an architectural project. But you know what? It's not just architecture. Yeah. It's very much about the concept of a place, which was called, in the case of Rotterdam, a museum. In the case of PS1, it's like a Kunsthalle, just like the Haus der Kunst. In the case of Tate Modern, it's called a museum. And now it's again a kind of Kunsthalle. And in between these things, I was asked to be director of the Theater de Volksbühne in Berlin, where we tried to go and work in a complete different space, a complete different environment, which was the airport Tempelhof. So I learned from these experiences that thinking about extending or changing museums is not just a question of brick and mortar. It's very much a conceptual way of thinking and very much thinking about, you know, what is going to be the next step. And of course, we are all very tired right now because we spoke about these ideas during so many years, I would say 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly all these things, because of the COVID situation, came together, not just because of COVID, but because of, which is very interesting, you have this disease, the pandemic, and you have all these problems with underrepresentation of women artists, and you have to force and, and make sure these things are changing. Then we have the tear gas trustees. We start to think about what governance is of museums. Tear gas trustees, because we don't trust our trustees anymore. Where is the money coming from? What is the ethical component of all of this? Then a few months later, we have Black Lives Matter. Then, at the same time, it's all about economics of museums, because museums are melting down, staff gets moved out. Then, with COVID, we have to come up with a completely different way of laying out exhibitions, of catering to the public. I mean, it's incredible. In three months' time, all these things are coming together, and we are forced to rethink museums. So, my vision, if there is any was very much tied into the tasking I got from the minister. And now my vision is very much tied into the 
the constraints are the pressure which is up in these strange times and that's quite 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 fascinating and uh, that's what we are now working on well really it comes into play in terms of there is an immense creative process of uh, museum directors and curators but then the, the creativity is even one that you must explore more it's a uh, uh, the man, as you say, the management of management of the planning and all of that. Um, I would love to speak about. So when, I, when you spoke about art plus, it seems like from the beginning, Grand Palais is art plus, and now it's art plus plus. Um, it's interesting. You mentioned Marot, and I think that in your, I, I, had, I had heard that you had an initial inspiration to be a curator, perhaps from something uh, that you, his encyclopedic. I, if you, I think I heard this story. That I wanted to be a curator because of Marot, or there was something about his archives, his his work. Or, I heard this conversation with Hans Rico Brist. You had we were speaking about the archive. Oh my God, that's a long time ago. <laughs> right, or maybe not. I love, I love libraries, I love yes. books, I love archives. I have uh, many different kinds of libraries. Yeah. I mean, there is the library, of course, of uh, so-called group exhibitions and art history. Then I have my library of monographies. But what's much more interesting is that I have different types of libraries which are representing different disciplines. And my principle of organization is serendipity. I always find what I'm not looking for. Mm. And in going through the library, it's a kind of self-made algorithm. I find things which then I can connect to other things. And of course, because I've been in the business since so many years, I have lots of archives. And uh, I work, I love to work with these archives. I really love to work with these archives. And then in uh, thinking back, in the 70s, I uh, was an artist, and I think I was the worst artist of Belgium. Oh, well, that's, a, so. that's an honor, then. No, I mean, so I decided that there were many better artists than me, and I started to stop, oh. mm. and I started to work for other artists who were much better. And my first performance as an artist was ripping out reproductions of the art history books I had back then, mm. and I put them on the street, and I was walking over them. I don't know why, because it was like a, a almost silly student-like, you know, I was 19, student-like protest against the canon of art history. But funnily enough, in looking back at these photos, I was thinking about Maro in his office when he laid out all these reproductions. And uh, I have indeed the same fascination, I guess, for reproductions as Maro. Also because I'm fascinated in reproduction of art. Uh, I'm now working on exhibition of moulage, moulage uh, because for me to understand digital exhibitions you have to concentrate on the history of moulage. It's almost the same kind of problem which is posed there. And when people speak today about uh, moulage, about digital exhibitions, I think it's very key to think about it like a form and I'm quoting Eric de Chasset, a form of authenticité redistribuée. Now Eric said authenticité distribuée, distributed authenticity. But I would say redistributed authenticity. Mm -hmm. I've been doing exhibitions about multiples and editions. 
I always fascinated in the reproduction of art. And my first performance as a bad artist was called Two Under Three Productions. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been always fascinated in that. And the, it continues with archives. Of course, in the meanwhile, I'm dropping a lot of archives. Mm -hmm. um, my video and archive is in Brussels at Argos. Um, lots of archives, the work I did with Helio Tisica, the Brazilian artist, lots of these archives are the um, archives I gave to Tate Modern because I'm not sitting like a chicken on my own stuff. Mm. I like to give it away where it's better used. And now I'm thinking about, you know, how, what should I do with all these books? Because uh, uh, I think it's necessary to start to find a place for it. Because, I mean, there might be people who got, who get better use of it than I do. But it's very well organized, but it's a very idiosyncratic library. You will not find any books by some writers or curators or artists because I don't like them. Mm -hmm. So it's a very personal, incomplete library. It's very well organized. But there are many holes in it because, you know, an artist, I'm not interested in I'm He's or she's not there. Mm -hmm. That's as simple as that. Because people ask me and they say, oh, you don't have a book by this? I say, no, because I think he's a bad artist. I mean, I, I learned to say bad and good very early on because I think it's very, very important to have a judgment. Uh, we lost that whole judgment idea because uh, visual arts is like a sponge in comparison to other disciplines like cinema or opera or theater or dance, which I'm quite good at because I know all these disciplines, I've worked in them. It's very wacky discipline. I mean very much about entertainment and it's very much about of course investment which is okay because you know art modern art came from the tension between symbolical and financial transaction but still it's it's very wacky it's uh, and um, for instance in visual arts it's very hard to find people who say dare to say that something is bad mm. I mean everybody's very polite in the world I like to move in cinema, opera, literature we say this is bad this is not good this is a bad movie but nobody dares to say that in visual arts it's mm. like amazing I mean I find it very folkloric mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also because I mean a lot of people um, who are who love visual arts they have barely knowledge. Mm. It's a social thing, isn't it? It's very interesting because I do believe, yes, we do have to have the courage to say what we like and what we don't like. No, and why. And Yeah, and no, yeah, no why. Yeah. It's not a mob rule thing. Um, mm. I, I wonder why that is. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I guess maybe... Uh, <laughs> maybe also for collectors or whatever we don't want to offend the people that may sell you the art if you uh, make public mm. judgments I don't know why it's an interesting mm. question why people don't I mean um, it's I think we, we, we forgot what judgment is mm. and uh, but now the pressure is so much on on artists and curators and museums things are going to change radically mm -hmm. 
I always speak not about good or bad art. I don't think that's interesting. I speak about necessary or not necessary art. Mm. And I'm teaching a lot. And uh, still do. Yeah. And when I had to ask students, why do you come and study? Mm -hmm. I was only interested in students who spoke about, I want to make a contribution. If somebody said to me, I want to express myself, I was like, oh no, please. I mean, uh, all these people who want to express themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, influencers, Instagram, all these men and women who write diaries and, mm -hmm. and send their autobiographies to publishers. I mean, everybody wants to express themselves. I can care less. Mm. So I had a lot of students who said, I, I feel this. You know, I don't care about your feelings. I want to know what you can contribute. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's my one of my criteria of judgment. Is this artwork a contribution? Mm -hmm. When it's definitely a contribution, it's necessary. You know, I love that. And we can speak about your other, you know, theater and dance and mm -hmm. bringing other things into and outside of the museum. Mm -hmm. it's, it's because... Uh, because I'm really, I, I'm really interested in uh, in other disciplines, not because of the so-called interdisciplinary. Mm. Because Bruno Latour once said in a conversation I had to moderate, if you want to be interdisciplinary, you have to be at least good at one discipline. <laughs> <laughs> and so many people, so many artists will call them researchers oh my god another thing i hate i'm not an artist i'm an artist researcher oh yeah i mean they, i mean uh, it's like something i mean it's like i have to see them my dermatologist because <laughs> i get immediately a rash you know i'm an artist researcher <laughs> i mean I so it's like uh it's it's uh i like i like the fact that that you have to be good at one discipline mm. but you know i i I'm very much, I was very much involved with people who know how to make things in theater, in cinema, makers. Mm -hmm. I made films myself oh, with yes. the famous uh, Belgian filmmaker Jeff Cornelis for TV. One of my best friends is Martin Margiela, the fashion designer. And I can tell you the way Martin made clothes and made his handwork. In the new film of Martin, you see Martin Margiela, you see his hands making things. I mean, I like people who can make things. Mm -hmm. Conceptual artists can make things. I mean, the way Lawrence Wiener is working with words, he's a word maker. Mm. You know, Richard Tuttle is a textile specialist. Skills. There is such a thing as yes. skills. Yeah. yeah, yeah, skills is very important. And I also think that de-skilling, you can do that if you're skilled. Hello, my name is Jennifer Kim and I'm currently a junior studying film at Syracuse University. I'm also a young artist curator for the creative process. What I wanted to talk about was while applying to Syracuse University, part of the application process was to write an artist statement. And I was still in high school at the time, and I barely had any filmmaking experience, so I didn't have an extensive resume or any official achievements. But I knew one thing for sure, and it was that I wanted my work to make people feel something. 
And in my film theory class last year, my sophomore year, I learned that the way you watch a film is really important. There's a difference between watching a movie on your laptop in your room and watching a film in a movie theater. There's an entirely different experience for both, even if you're watching the same movie. So when Chris Durkin talked about museums as an experience, I completely agreed with him. Museums are more than just a place for learning and entertainment now. It's also a place for encounters and experiences, just like Chris Durkin said. So your documentaries? So, I mean, it's, let me go back in time. I started, uh, I was studying history of art and I wanted to be an artist because I was always being a painter. Um, and I made animation films when I was a kid. And then I, when I was studying in the Netherlands, I got uh, in touch with Galerie de Appel, Wie Smals, where Marina Abramovic and Uwe Leissieten, Ule, were doing performances. And I was also attending lots of the Mikiri Theatre, which was an experimental theatre where the Wooster Group was playing. I mean, with Lis Leconte and William Defoe. And I was really following very closely what was happening in experimental dance. So my first, um, my first passion after I stopped being an artist was uh, thinking about making theatre and dance and curating theatre and curating dance. And I worked with Carol Armitage, I worked with Merce Cunningham, John Cage. And then very quickly I got these commissions by Belgium State Television to do interviews because I had kind of privileged contacts with, uh, with people like Merce. And uh, so I made documentaries. I was co-writer, I was interviewer, I was co-director. And then I had amazing privilege to start to work with the famous Belgium TV director Jeff Cornelis, whose work was even uh, being written upon uh, by um, curators in, in France and in Germany. And he was uh, famous because he worked very early on with Marcel Brothars and he did films with Kaspar Koenig and he uh, worked with <laughs> Wim Beren, uh, Daniel Buren. And he invited me to work with him so I started to work with him and, and that was an incredible encounter. And from Belgium State Television I started to do documentaries for VPRO, which is the Dutch uh, channel for very radical work, so I could work with them. And then I started to present programs for BBC. I did work with Jürgen Teller and, and, and other uh, teams for BBC. So I always worked in, in films and now, I mean, strangely enough, I was asked a few weeks ago if I would like to start to make films again. And I feel like um, I have some ideas. The problem is time because to make films is taking a lot of time. Mm. But I really want to, to do just, you know, because filmmaking is handwork. And it reaches uh, the audiences too. Like, yes, but yeah. I was also a film producer. I produced uh, 
I co-produced Sokorov, Nightwatch. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, when I worked with Albert Serra at the Volksbühne in Berlin... I interviewed him. <laughs> he, uh, Albert uh, then turned his film, uh, his work for the theater, Liberté, with uh, Helmut Berger. Mm. He turned it into a movie. And for me, the most um, amazing experience of that all was that we tried to um, uh, seduce Jean-Pierre Léo uh, to play the role on the stage of this crazy Marquis de Sade. And I had this conversation with Jean-Pierre Léo, and I think uh, my biggest hero in cinema is Jean-Pierre Léo, especially mm -hmm. in the films where he plays Antoine Douanel. Uh, in uh, the work of François Truffaut, so I had the utmost pleasure to be able to talk about Jean-Pierre Léo. He finally didn't do it, but it was Helmut Berger who did it. Uh, of course, we know Helmut Berger from the films of Visconti. So just to say that, that I love movies, and uh, I love movies which nobody wants to see, and I believe in one dictum, which is... Uh, you can sleep during a film <laughs> because that means you trust the director. Ah, I, I kept I keep sleeping in many instances. I like I sleeping do. because my 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 idea about sleeping has also been reinforced through my work with Apichat Pongveresitakul, mm. the Thai filmmaker. Mm. I like in incredible slow films. The longer and the slower it is the better. Albert Serra is like that too. Yeah, yeah very <laughs> slow. And I just watched a new movie by Charlie Kaufman, mm. uh, who made Anomalisia. And that movie is so slow. I haven't seen it's it. Like yet. It's, uh, I even wrote an essay about slowness uh, when I worked with, um, with Hans Ulrich ah, yeah. uh, in uh, San Gimignano. Oh, yeah. I was very interested in slowness and I think I want to present at the Grand Palais Femer, 24-hour Hitchcock by Douglas Gordon, mm -hmm. talking about slow films. But also the fashion of Martin Margiela is very slow. The fashion shows of Martin were always slow, with mm -hmm. the fashion models, you know, like uh, on, on the catwalk. It was not like the fashion shows today. Mm -hmm. Martin is also very slow. We, we all like slowness. I think it's important to, you can notice things more, and if you and you mm -hmm. in film something can suddenly become very fascinating when you even mm -hmm. do the slow motion. Mm -hmm. um, oh no, slow motion is bad. When uh, I was teaching like cinema, <laughs> when I was teaching cinema uh, in uh, the film school in Brussels, when you don't know an idea anymore, mm -hmm. when you don't have an idea, I see young film students then they turn into slow motion. So. What I told them is in my film classes, they were forbidden to do anything <laughs> with slow motion. Okay. My first exercise for the students was to film a sentence by Wittgenstein. Mm. A door is closed when the person trying to open the door is pushing the door instead of pulling it. And all the kids started to make action films. And I said, no. I want you to film the word if. I was like, mm, mm, mm. thinking. <laughs> but the word if is very important when you look at the work of Alain René, mm. when you look at the work of Jean-Luc Godard, when you look even at Truffaut. So I wanted them to concentrate on if. 
So they started to slow down the motion, the action, mm. in pulling and closing. I said, no, I don't want any slow motion. So there were so many tears. <laughs> and I said, it's very good because, you know, making movies is about crying. And we all cry on sets because we don't know anymore what we want. And that's uh, that's what I liked about movies, I mean, yeah. I guess. It's yeah. it's interesting, and it's interesting not knowing things going into yeah. it. And I'm v actually, I love falling asleep doing movies too, because sometimes I imagine another movie mm -hmm. a little better. Right. <laughs> so it's, no, a, no, it's, it's a combination yeah. of the imagination of yeah. them and yeah. me. Um, yeah. That's a good art, I yeah. think, is a yeah. definition too, is when you can add something to mm -hmm. it. It's true. Yeah. Actually, Pa Chong Beres Takul has a lot of theories about that. I mean, if you want to... Uh, I did a conversation at the film festival in Rotterdam with Api Chatpong mm -hmm. about sleeping and about slowness. And it's he has an incredible radical theory about it, which is uh, which is too long to say <laughs> that right now. But it's yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, you can find many of my conversations on YouTube and with Hans Ulrich about archiving, with Api Chatpong mm -hmm. about slow films. So there is a lot of documentation about that. I mean that's part of the archives right now. We 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 have we have a project where we have to find all these these things coming together. Mm -hmm. I mean the this is the coffre four. Mm -hmm. You know these two doors there. Yes. And behind that is uh, my most valuable collection. It's all the publications and all the films I did myself. Oh wow! That's the that's like a, a huge closet. And it's all there. That's my life. <laughs> it's interesting. That's, that's the only thing I have. It's you know what I made. That's behind these two. Will doors. you do an exhibition of the Cofador? Uh, there are some people who were asking me that, but I'm not <laughs> going to do it. I like to make exhibitions of documents. I did at some point. I did an exhibition of my collection of, oh. of multiples and editions, but it's a very strange collection. You know, mm. it's like, uh, it's weird. It's like uh, beer. Uh, how do you call that? Beer, beer? mat. Beer mats uh, by Lawrence Wiener, and uh, I think it's a it's a picture of me and Andy Warhol, when at 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 the factory. I mean all these kind of weird things. I like to make vitrines in all the exhibitions I curated. It was full of vitrines because vitrines are like little wunderkammers. Mm -hmm. you, you can combine yeah. things, and yeah. it's very nice. So I like that. I think there's something that's the collecting. We we have this kind of collecting impulse, so the vitrine allows us to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I don't. I wonder where do you feel this collecting or archiving impulse comes from? I mean, not just for yourself personally, but for people, what it gives to them. Oh, as Freud and Walter Benjamin explained that. I mean, the moment we start to play with toys, and the moment we start to play with toys and make things like when you do things with Playmobil. Or when you are working with Lego mm -hmm. or with puppets, I mean, we have it deeply in us to collect things. You know, toys, for instance. It's it's something which we have in ourselves. That's the reason I was incredibly happy that my first exhibition at the Haus der Kunst in this awful place by Hitler. It was the private museum of Hitler in Munich, and my first show was with Idessa Handelus, the the famous Canadian collector curator. Because she has the biggest collection of teddy bears in the world. Mm. Best teddy bear she has. She sold the collection. And it had to do with her Jewish background. Because the Gestapo and the SS 
when they took away the Jewish children, they always took the teddy bears and gave them to their own children. And Idessa tried to find traces back of stolen teddy bears of Jewish children in the 30s because she was born just right after the liberation of the concentration camps. Her parents were, both parents were in concentration camps, being Jews. And Idessa started to collect teddy bears. And my first show in the Haus der Kunst, in that place owned by Hitler, was to show all the teddy bears collected by Idessa Handels next to the Hitler sculpture by Maurizio Catalan. That was my first show as a kind of exorcist kind of uh, gesture for the House der Kunst, which was commissioned by Hitler and its fascist architecture. I always, I always like to make strange shows. Mm. I mean, it's too easy to say, I, you know, I like this and I do it. I mean, an exhibition is also a form of storytelling. Mm. That's very important. But all these things I'm telling you is in that image presentation. Yes. which we can send to you and then you can, you can look at it. I mean, everything I tell you today, the performance, the television work, uh, the first shows at, uh, at Haus der Kunst, my vision of the Grand Palais is all in these images. So you will see, you can relate these images to. That's beautiful. And I think that the teddy bear image is, is so interesting how those things that we own and that we love can store mm -hmm. memories mm -hmm. uh, and can stand for years. Right. It can right. stand for so yeah. much time. Lost childhood, lost yeah. innocence, family. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very important to try to reinvent today what an exhibition can do. Because at the time of uh, going from one artwork to the next and admiring something and the whole idea of chronology, in 1840 he did this and in 1860 she did that, that's over. We live in synchro time. The year 2000 didn't exist anyway. We lost the whole idea of chronology. Don't ask me what I did on March 25. I don't know anymore. Mm. I think I was on my bike, because I had a special paper permission. I was biking in the completely empty city of Paris, mm -hmm. from here to the Grand Palais. There was nobody. I loved that strangeness. Was and I was sitting in the Grand Palais, and I heard the boatsmen of the transport ships on the Seine. And I heard them yelling, left, à gauche, à droite. And I heard the water splicing. I don't hear that anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's completely lost. I love that eerie quality. I really liked it so much. And I remember making lots of dialogues with homeless people because the Rue de Rivoli, in front of Angelina, it was completely taken, occupied by homeless people. They were the only ones allowed in the street. Mm -hmm. And I photographed them, I filmed them, mm -hmm. and I spoke with them. I think it was one of the most crucial times in my life to be in that situation, a totally empty city. It was fantastic. It's really, it, it was like a movie, yeah. a movie by Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> a lot of I know a lot of filmmakers, cinematographers mm-hmm. were going out like getting yeah, yeah, this yeah. footage for their they can use it in later right. an apocalyptic mm-hmm. film or whatever. Yeah, yeah, true. It's really hard to get the set of those mm-hmm. scenes. Right. I yeah, it was interesting. You can look at the positive things. Yeah, and homeless people on the streets. Mm-hmm. Um now it's different. I hope I don't know if we'll go to lockdown again. I hope it doesn't Homeless people are very good storytellers. Interesting. Because, you know, they don't have any material, kind of, whatever, mm-hmm. things. And what they tell are stories. I mean, endless storytelling. Mm-hmm. And they repeat them. It's in a cycle because I guess they have to tell them every day, over mm-hmm. and over and over and over again. And I was fascinated by the way they structured their, their stories. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do something about it, I think, in the future, but it's quite... That's all part of the archives there. That's like, yeah. You know, that's very interesting. You know, we have a section about this project, too. It's called The Invisible Arts. And mm-hmm. I think that's about behind-the-scenes people, like mm-hmm. teachers or librarians mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. editors. But when I think about homeless people, it's like they're the invisible people. Like, they're, they're there. Uh, they are very visible to me. They're I mean. visible to <laughs> me, but a lot of people, it's like mm-hmm. this thing we, mm-hmm. we don't see. And their stories are important because they're mm-hmm. witness also to everything. You know, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. A lot, so much. Everyone has the phone. They look down at the phone. They, right. Where they are is not where they are mentally, mm-hmm. imaginatively. Mm-hmm. But a homeless person is watching, is knows mm-hmm. the street, mm-hmm. like have a sense of it. Right. Whereas we are kind mm-hmm. of like virtu- in virtual. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. what is that? I would love. To, I'm very excited to hear to hear about that. And uh, and you know, I we don't do enough for homeless people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. I mean, it's uh, here in Paris. It's, but don't forget that uh, in speaking to the homeless, there are some people who definitely want to be without a mm-hmm. fixed home. They yeah. are travelers. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. And uh, there are some of them. They really can. They cannot live in a closed environment. Mm-hmm. Like it's gypsies uh, of some kind. Yeah. yeah, some kind of gypsies. Mm. Yeah, I lived in Ireland and there were many gypsies. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to go off topic. You were talking about how we reinvent the museum, how we bring things outside of mm-hmm. uh, the museum um, to, uh, you know, and I know you're you're thinking about that so much now too. So, um, what you know, what are your plans uh, now that you are, um, I know it's changed. I mean, the plans are very simple. That is, we we continue the, to think about the transformation of the Réunion du Musée National, mm. transformation also developing our skills into probably something much more pointu, much more precise, like what we are trying to do with digital exhibitions. And I think after Site Eternel, which happened a few years ago, about cities like Mosul and uh, other destroyed cities, we just did this exhibition about the destruction of Pompeii, uh, which is presenting a new form of archaeology, the archaeology of the image, where we combine the digital with real object. I think that's a very, very, very important direction for all of us, because Cite Ternel and Pompeii are both blueprints, are both works in progress, are both tests, and that's the reason why I mentioned that article by Eric de Chassé, where he calls his exhibitions distributed authenticity, authenticité distribué. Because, you know, today we live in an age where we cannot all go to Pompeii, we cannot go all anymore to Venice. 
probably we cannot do any more exhibitions where all the masterpieces I'm saying something of El Greco are coming together because transportation of artworks is getting more and more expensive because there are less and less planes and um, every single museum in the world has its own problems right now some museums are melting down because of financing because of their crisis in governance because of the crisis in social racial conflicts even because of lack of audiences so we have a totally meltdown so we have to think about new types of exhibitions exhibitions which are more catered to a local public with fewer works or we think about developing this type of exhibitions like digital exhibitions you know but i think it's very important to combine digital always with the real so that's something we are very good at our publications department is very very good at thinking about new types of reading of combinations of images and text so we are very good at that so i'm i'm really uh, it's very interesting to think further the transformation also in terms of what's necessary for the regions these museums in the regions were also suffering and they have incredible collections oh did you oh, sorry you're going to switch what has happened uh, i think he said Okay, so you switch to your thing? Okay. Good. I'm sorry, the right. battery ran out. Right. <laughs> it's so, okay. So we have, uh, we have that, and then, of course, there is the transformation of the Grand Palais, the new building, mm -hmm. where we have uh, very, very interesting discussions about what that space after 1900 and after the transformation and the changes in the... 20s in the 30s and after the changes in the 60s what kind of changes are necessary right now mm -hmm. with that said always saying that you know the Grand Palais was a hybrid space from the beginning had a kind of post-covid architecture mm -hmm. to begin with and what is necessary in terms of new hybrid spaces in a situation like Paris and that's my main occupation right now I just want to say, for those who don't know, I mean, I think Grand Palais, you know, you can, in winter, ice skate in it. You know, it is a social space. I think that might be the only museum I heard of where you can ice skate inside of it. Maybe mm -hmm. there's others. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of things like that. So as you say, mm -hmm. I think it's really a way forward, and it was ahead of its time, even mm -hmm. over a hundred years ago. Um, you know, I want to say, because this is an educational initiative and creativity and critical thinking are considered like the literacies of the 21st century. Obviously, you nurture yours in many ways, but as you apply what you've learned, you know, you know, even growing up in Lier, we didn't speak about your how you came to curation. Um, you know, how, what are some ways, maybe speak a little bit of, about your beginnings, but what are some ways you also feel that others could, how can we promote in our educational systems, you know, a, a, you know more creativity and more, you know, appreciation of the arts um, and all these critical skills, the way that you have in your life? I mean, it's very simple. I mean, I had... Uh very very good teachers in the middle school where I went mm -hmm. my teacher of Latin he was collecting muscle brotars because don't forget at that time these things barely costed anything mm -hmm. my teacher of art he was uh, quite a good painter but he <laughs> showed us the films of Jean-Luc Godard and uh, the neorealist films I mean my film education is coming from there 
So it depends on your teachers. It doesn't depend so much on the curriculum. It depends on the teachers and also on your immediate environment at school. And I was in a very privileged situation to be in a class where quite a few actors came out, where quite a few brainy people came out who are still working in radio. They are now the bosses of radio uh, in Belgium. So it's quite interesting. Graphic designers, musicians, radio people, media people, but even actors. Mm. I mean, so that was the context I grew up in. Yeah, it's really human. And so school, I mean, is where you are and with whom, that's incredibly important. For me, that was the most major influence. More important than home. Mm. and uh, that was something which was for me crucial and all the beginnings are right there because from when I was 13, 14 I was confronted with new ideas of theatre, visual arts, film so it all came together mm. and that's what I, I continue to do so mm. <laughs> that's, it's as simple as that I think so. Now, I I found in France there's a lot of respect, of course, for education. You know, in some other countries, mm-hmm. I know you lived in America, like uh, teachers are really not supported very well mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know why, because I think you can solve a lot of social problems mm-hmm. if people have good foundations in mm-hmm. the beginning. Okay. Um, but yeah, we have to support our teachers mm-hmm. more. And um, I think I'm so glad to, to hear that from you. And I think, you know, as we're also we think about you talk about is it is art important? You know, what art is important? You know, what is the importance of the arts? But what are what is it contributing to society? So just in closing up, we also are thinking about the future. What is the social responsibility of art? How can you know what kind of world are we leaving the next generation? And how can we improve some of these models that are failing us whether it's education or health or we think about global warming what can we do we have to invent reinvent basically everything because we see that um, there is probably a generation who are lacking almost one year of social encounters we're lacking uh, one year almost I mean of normal education education is about interaction I think it's very difficult to interact with all these zoom and whatever so it's 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 incredibly necessary to re-establish everything and it's a very important moment in time because you can redefine everything if 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 you would say that museums are for this and for that and for this and for that 10 20 years ago they would declare you for nuts because people would say a museum is in the first place about acquiring art and the collection now we say suddenly museum is many different things and suddenly it becomes true because of the crisis we are living in. So there is time for reinventing things. We have to be courageous enough to really start some things from scratch. And that's an exciting time. And it's very important not to panic, but to look at the things we did well, to look at the things we did not well, to look at the things we didn't have time to do, which we were thinking about, and now we we need to do all of that all of a sudden. And we can do it because the pressure is 
of the fact that our museums are full and loaded with people. I mean, museums are not full and loaded with people. Mm. Suddenly you are confronted with almost empty museums, mm. which is quite a scene, you know, to go into a museum which is kind of empty. It's mm. like uh, when I did uh, the Nightwatch project where I invited filmmakers to come and film at night uh, the Museum Boymans van Brunningen, I based the commissions on the book Nadja by André Breton. And in that book, André Breton describes this scene that seven young men locked themselves up at night in the museum in order to admire the portrait in one of the rooms of the woman they love, they are passionately in love with. And so that idea of locking yourself up at night in the museum and just have the museum for you, that was the basis of the script for people like Sokhorov. Sokhorov did this film about that. So that's kind of interesting that we are now living kind of night at the museum time. Mm. It's it's very strange. I mean, if you think about that the show of Steve McQueen at that moment can only be visited by 150 people at once. So you have a kind of interesting emptiness. And uh, so it's it's a chance. We are, you know, we are, everything is lying there in fragments and we have to piece things together again and we have to set priorities so it's an exciting time to be uh, i think a uh, museum director museum curator because it's a very difficult time so you have to make choices mm. and finally we can make choices again mm. and that's the reason i think that's more important than creativity to make mm -hmm. choices to make the right so choices mm. and to understand what the decision making process is mm. that's very very important so it's uh, it's difficult time, but it's also an exciting time. I, I think that that's so right, because you have to take a position in life. Right. Mm -hmm. I want to thank mm -hmm. you, Chris Jerkin mm -hmm. and the Grand Palais, okay. for um, all you've done to promote art and creativity and to uh, show us the importance of, of taking mm -hmm. a position and making judgments uh, mm -hmm. about art and how we can contribute to a better society. Thank you for adding your voice much. to the process. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Jennifer Kim. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.